Have you ever loved your headshots? Would you rather go to the dentist than get your professional picture taken? For many people, it's a toss-up. They never like images of themselves, and sessions are awkward. If you're done with the standard headshot, it's time for the best. It's time for high-end headshots. Headshots you actually like. High-end headshots is a new kind of headshot experience. It's the polar opposite of being told to say cheese. Facial expression coaches produce images that resonate, images that actually look like you. Head photographer John Meadows coaches you, educates you, and takes your feedback into account as you go through the session. Visit HighEndHeadshots.com to check out some of his work and schedule your appointment today. That's HighEndHeadshots.com. That's HighEndHeadshots.com. Tell them Brian sent you. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, I always do open palm first. I always try to extend a hand of friendship. But when you are modernizing, you need to be aware there are going to be detractors who aren't always going to play nice. And I hate to say it. I mean, because public service should be a benevolent activity. That's what I always tell people. Be bold, be brave, be benevolent. But you need to be aware that sometimes folks who want to hold on to the past, um, for whatever reason, will be your biggest detractors. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The increased use of technology in our daily lives has been one of the most noticeable changes catalyzed by the pandemic. It changed how people work, play, shop, study, and socialize in just a few months. According to a study, a majority anticipate using technology even more in the future than they would have otherwise. As much as 64% of the respondents anticipate that the pandemic will result in an increase in the use of technology overall. Although governments worldwide have sped up the process of digitizing many public services, many still fall behind the private sector offerings like online banking and shopping in terms of anticipated gains in service delivery. Over half of the people globally believe that governments and public services have used digital technology in successfully combating the pandemic. This shows, though, that governments still need to make progress in their digital transformation before they can live up to the expectations of the citizens they serve. And part of that progress also includes how technologies should be deployed ethically and in meaningful ways. Joining me in today's discussion is Dr. David Bray. He's a distinguished fellow with the Stimson Center, and he's also served in a variety of leadership roles, including chief information officer at the FCC. He's also supported bioterrorism preparedness and response, and as the executive director for a bipartisan national commission on research and design. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. So I read in your bio, and I think this is a a great place to start this conversation, that you like being what you consider a a human flak jacket. And I think it's, it's actually really funny because anybody who's connected with David on LinkedIn your profile picture has you in an actual flak jacket. 
tell me a little bit about that story. I know you you did some time in Afghanistan uh, around uh, bioterrorism, et cetera, but can you start us off and tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so yeah, that, that photo is actually from the back of a C-130 uh, in 2009 in Afghanistan. And it was actually a Spanish-speaking C-130 with NATO. So the pilot was Spanish-speaking. And, and the story there was I was part of a group of folks, uh, both uh, military and civilian, with the Institute for Defense Analyses that were going downrange because the administration had just changed uh, from President Bush 43 to President Obama. And they wanted nonpartisans, because if you remember, we had kept Secretary Bob Gates as Department of Defense to go downrange and identify problems that didn't know were problems yet. Um, but the story behind that photo was uh, as we were going downrange, we were flying military transport in, and um, the government of uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, asked for some aid before they would let any more flights in. And so we were grounded for a little bit, it took a few days as we waited to go downrange. When we finally got approval, the U.S. got approval to send more flights downrange into Afghanistan, um, we went to go retrieve our bags and our pallet was missing. So here I was getting ready to go downrange into Afghanistan for 120 days with no bag. Um, and so if that was ever a <laughs> Semper Gumby, always flexible flak jacket moment, it's when you're like, what in my choices in life had led to this moment where I'm on a Spanish speaking C-130 in Afghanistan with no back? I, I mean, I, I think that's awesome. What, I mean, obviously there's the obvious pieces, right? But what did that really teach you about yourself? I mean, there's so much, I, I love the the term Semper Gumby, um, yes. which for those who don't know that term, it, it, it it, it kind of derives from that Semper Fidelis, Semper Fi, but it's it's always being flexible, always being able to adapt to your situation. Um, I'm guessing this wasn't the first time you've had to adapt, but you get into this type of draconian situation. What did that really teach you about yourself and your ability to be resilient? Yes. Well, uh, it's worth noting that even before then, um, so early on, I, I got approached by the government at an early age to start working for the government on computer simulations. Um, my father was a Methodist minister. My mom was a school teacher. And I think I was attracted to computer simulations, one, because computers, we, I was, my grandfather got each of his grandchildren or his, his, his family computers. And so this was in the 80s. I had a whopping uh, IBM PC Junior with 64 kilobytes of RAM. But as I learned how to take apart the machine and program it, I was really trying to figure out who my father as a Methodist minister was working for and, and sort of like understanding the natural world. And so in the 90s, I actually built a computer simulation of greenhouse gases and ozone layer deterioration. Uh, later in 1998, I built a computer simulation of uh, HIV AIDS in South Africa because they had gone from 5,000 cases out of 40 million people in 1994 to more than 2.4 million cases four years later in 1998. And I was just trying to understand the world and, and try to make a difference. I think that was, again, something my mom and my father um, both inspired uh, um, all of us to do. And so um, by doing simulations of, of HIV AIDS in South Africa, uh, that actually, one, it, it taught me resilience because uh, if you remember in 1998, Thabo Mbeki had replaced Nelson Mandela as president in South Africa, and he was saying that HIV AIDS was a Western myth. Um, and I was actually getting, I was, I was volunteering with the Cape Argus, which was a newspaper in Cape Town. And I was being told, write about politics, write about football. And I'm like, no, 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 you have an HIV AIDS as well as tuberculosis epidemic going on here. And, and ultimately, I actually basically had to leave the paper. I, I just, you know, I, I tried to go all the way up to the editorial board and I kept on hitting my head against the wall. And I said, volunteered in Kailicha, which is a township outside of uh, Cape Town. 
um, basically trying to teach the students about uh, sex ed and, and being aware of trying to do prevention for HIV AIDS. Um, and so that was probably one of the first moments that taught that I, I, I try all I can within the system. And if it doesn't work, I'll go someplace else. Uh, fast forward to 2001. And I was now with what was called the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program, which uh, I actually started in November of 2000. It was a small 30-person program. The fact that I had had clearances when I was 17, the government had sort of said, would you like to tackle this new effort? And, and I said, sure, I'll do bioterrorism preparedness for two or three years. Um, admittedly, it was not the type of topic you brought up at, at, at parties or events when people said, what did you do? And you said you did bioterrorism preparedness. They, they kind of step away and you're like, no, 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 really, it's okay. Um, but um, the Agile Manifesto came out in February of 2001. Uh, and I was an early adopter of the Agile Manifesto, partly because um, you know, we had to get things in place for preparedness and the state of public health at the time, and it still is to a degree, was fax machines. Um, in 2001, a lot of the public health labs that actually did testing for bioterrorism didn't even have internet in the labs. Um, and so it was pretty basic conditions. And, and so I was rolling out web-based laboratory reporting, um, but I was not following the waterfall model. And at the CDC, I had actually gotten a little bit in trouble with the top leadership that did IT because they said, you need to be following the five-year enterprise plan and the three-year budgeting cycle and waterfall. And I actually had said in summer of 2001, I said, we don't have a deal with the terrorists not to strike until we have our IT system online. Um, and sure enough, it was scheduled weeks in advance that I was supposed to give a briefing to the CIA and the FBI as to what the bioterrorism program's technology response would be if a bioterrorism event happened. And that briefing just happened to be scheduled for September 11th, 2001, nine o'clock in the morning. And of course, 8.34, the world changes. 9-11, um, of course, not being a bioterrorism event. We don't sleep for three weeks, so stand down from high alert on October 1st. And I end up flying to McLean and briefing the CIA on October 3rd, uh, only to have the first case of anthrax show up in Florida 24 hours later. So um, and then it was a question of why didn't you do more? Because now we were responding to an actual bioterrorism event. Um, and we were only 30 people in a 30,000 person organization. Um, but it, it, it taught me that sometimes sometimes you have to figure out when are you flexible. Uh, sometimes you have to figure out how you're going to navigate within the system. And sometimes part of leadership is stepping outside of expectations and, and managing the flack that gets thrown your way because you stepped outside of expectations. As you're navigating all this, I mean, I, I like how you started that entire story talking about how you got into this because you really wanted to do you serve greater good. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think anybody who's looked at your career, I think there's been a real intentionality around that. Um, even without you having said that, but I'm curious to know what really, what or who kind of guided you along this path? Did you have a mentor or mentors or somebody that you looked at from afar as a role model that really helped guide you with this intentionality? I mean, I, I, I keep on going back to, I, I looked at what my, my mother and my father did. And, and you know, to this day, um, in particular, my father's remains one of my best friends. Uh, my mom too. But, you know, it, it's, it's my dad that I can talk deep questions about the universe and everything. Um, and, you know, they, they, they intentionally chose their careers of being a school teacher and being a Methodist minister um, because it was about service. And, and in particular, they had gifts. My mom's gift was being a host, making people feel comfortable, um, having a good time. I mean, there was once a fun story where 
this was back in the 70s. Fake nails were in fashion and she was getting ready to help host a dinner in which the bishop was going to come and visit my father. And she was lighting candles and her fake thumbnail caught on fire and most people would discreetly blow it out. But instead, she turns to the bishop with her thumb on fire and says, want a light? And that was my mom, who was just sort of a sense of fun and, 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 and sort of making you feel at ease. My father, his skill sets were oftentimes he would inherit churches that had fragmented congregations where something had happened to divide the congregation um, and would figure out a way to lead them in some capital planning activity, some, some, some activity that required uh, coming together, capital planning and getting something done. And I realized as I look back at my public service career, um, as well as in other nonprofits and other settings as well, um, that's what I do. I, I like things where something has either pulled people apart, it seems fragmented, people are fatigued, they don't think it's going to happen. And it requires, yes, technology skills, but even more importantly, it's about how do you bring people together in a way that's meaningful, that's purposeful, um, that gets a result done. And, and actually, at the end of the day, hopefully people achieve something they never thought possible. I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, we we talk so much about how uh, the transformation it, that organizations take on really has more to do with the actual people than it mm -hmm. does with the technologies. Just a, as a funny aside, my um, my my dad's parents, um, so my grandparents, um, my grandfather was a Methodist minister, hmm. and my grandmother was a school teacher. Nice. And so relate to that story very Excellent. nicely, and and the 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 little uh, little anecdote you gave about your mom's thumb sounds exactly like the type of thing my grandmother would have done. Excellent. Um, so maybe uh, <laughs> I love that we're from similar cloth. And the other thing I would say too is, uh, my mom was Catholic until she agreed to marry my father. And I, of course, back then, unless she promised to raise the kids Catholic she had to sort of leave the Catholic church, which have been kind of awkward given my dad's profession. And so I'm also, I've been intentionally nonpartisan where I figure out, you know, I, I identify with people what they value as opposed to the flag they're flying, because I saw both in terms of what my mom chose to do and my father chose to do with their faiths. But also um, later on, my dad got a church that was actually split between being Methodist, Episcopalian and Presbyterian at the same time. And they would rotate the minister. And so I saw that at the end of the day, most people mean well. It's just a difference on how they choose to call things and worship and things like that. And so my same approach to public service, partly because I think we need it. We need people that are that are nonpartisan, that, that sort of embody the values of the Constitution, but do so without party affiliation. I, I've always approached things as nonpartisan because I think that that helps create a big enough tent to bring people in. It's the same thing we're trying to tell our our soon to be nine year old when what you have an election that's so polarized and, and and he's seeing the news and we're trying to explain to him. But at the end of the day, just kind of helping him understand that everybody that is running for public office has a belief that they can serve and they can do a greater good. I think they just have their own beliefs on how they want to do that and people line up behind them based on kind of what they think. But everybody wants to get in there to help. Exactly. Um, so if you can think about it that way, um, it, I think it kind of aligns you a little bit kind of to, to what you were, what you were saying. I, I, I don't want to stop that, that story though. You're, you're in Afghanistan, you're working on oh. counterterrorism and, yep. and t take us through, I mean, kind of what were some of those next steps? Cause eventually you ended up as, as CIO, um, at FCC, uh, which I think some people would say at the time was also a fragmented organization. Oh yes, um, <laughs> what, 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 was that what, what, was that your next stop on the on the train? No, there was there's some stops along the way. So Afghanistan <clears throat> is interesting because basically I I had been I was traveling um, 
technically as a civilian on Department of Defense travel orders for the Office of Secretary of Defense. I got to grow a beard, um, got to wear plain clothes, go outside the wire and, and talk to anybody and everybody, including uh, Afghan, local Afghans, NATO forces, coalition partners. And um, about I was there for 120 days, but about 45 days in, I actually produced both a classified and unclassified briefing. I still have the unclassified briefing where I said, I'm not sure why we're still here. Um, problem literacy is only 20%. And that's if you're male, uh, unfortunately, it's even less if you're female. Um, they've never really been a nation. Uh, I do not think democracy is an achievable goal in the short term, because we've got a lot of education to do here. Um, and everyone I talk to, it's unclear what is our ultimate objective here. I mean, they may say it's to bring democracy to Afghanistan. I'm like, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so um, not one to just bring a problem without solutions. I said, what I would recommend is we exit as soon as possible and then basically have special forces go to the 13 different tribes and offer them uh, aid as long as they promise as part of the Pashtun code not to abide anyone who would mean harm to our tribe, the West. And I think they would understand that with the Pashtun code. Or if you don't want to do that, and this was 2009, uh, then invite India and or China uh, India uh, being a lot like Pashtun culture, and there's obviously proximity. And China, of course, shares a border with Afghanistan, as well as they had some copper mines and, and other mines in Afghanistan already. Um, but invite them to play a peacekeeping role with the UN uh, and actually sort of have it as a regional peacekeeping operation with those one or, one or both of those partners involved. Um, and um, that got shot down, obviously. Um, and that's when, you know, I actually, I mean, I, I actually took it all the way up um, to both uh, the top level of U.S. as well as the U.K. government. And you learn that, you know, again, I have chosen a route of not being a political appointee. Uh, you bring the best reasons you can. And sometimes they're heard at the time and sometimes they're not. Um, but I moved on from there. Ghost wrote papers on other national security issues, including the future of work. Uh, I did a paper and, and, and some, some research in 2010 saying we need to have cyber deterrence theory um, in terms of what's a proportionate response to a cyber event. Uh, when do we respond with kinetic versus cyber? And I was told, oh, no, no, no. Why would we ever need cyber deterrence? Here we are now. Um, but that led then to uh, officially become a senior national intelligence service executive with the Office of Director of National Intelligence. And I, I wore different hats there, but the most important hat that I wore there was I got a call up from the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, uh, the Honorable Stephanie O'Sullivan at the time. And she said, would you like to serve as Executive Director for a bipartisan uh, commission that was going to review all the research and development programs of the U.S. intelligence community? Um, and of course, I said yes right away. Uh, now, interesting enough, there had been three senior executives in three months not work out. So I was now number four. She was a good CIA recruiter. She didn't tell you that anyone else had died metaphorically. Um, but also, interesting enough, this commission was actually introduced into draft law two days after 9-11 back in 2001. <laughs> and here we are in 2012 now. And it was only appropriated funds in 2011. It had six Democrats, six Republicans congressionally appointed. Um, and I was the one nonpartisan in the middle, uh, trying to bring them together after they'd already had three senior executives not work out. Um, the good news is a year and a half later, no one else had been killed metaphorically. Uh, we actually had bipartisan praise, which even in 2013 was hard to come by. Um, and we released four classified volumes of reports and one unclassified volume of report that you can find online. And, and about 10 years later, about 75% or more of our recommendations have been implemented. And it really was just sort of looking at the intelligence community as a whole saying, 
we're not sure if our R&D is ready for the challenges of the future, that we are still thinking we're in the Cold War, we need to make some pivots. At the time, we couldn't talk about it too loudly, but we talked about quantum. We talked about the commercialization of space. Uh, we talked about AI on the horizon and, uh, and synthetic biology, things that are now in the commercial space, but back then, 10 years ago, we're, we're still behind the curtain. Let me ask uh, you this, and, David, just, yeah. just real quick, because as you're, as you're talking about this, this commission and the, the efforts that you're doing, the thing that, it, that I start thinking about is another statement in your bio that you're kind of pulled, it, pulled towards complicated, near impossible missions involving humans and technology in challenging circumstances. I can't think of a situation that personifies that better than this commission, the one you were kind of tossed into, probably why four others had had left before you joined. What did this commission teach you about being able to bring people together in these type of situations around a common mission, around driving towards technology? Yes. So um, one of the things that I always like to do when I jump into uh, messy, complex situations like this is sort of develop a theory of case. So sort of like what, what has happened? Why, why, why have things not worked out? Why are people not making progress? What's going on here? And it's almost like playing detective. I sometimes feel like uh, Sherlock Holmes. And so I, I, I quickly met with each of the co-chairs, uh, both the Republican and Democratic co-chairs, but I also met with the commissioners. And it was clear, um, one, that previous efforts had met with people individually to set goals with the different commissioners as opposed to collectively. And that was just a, that was a mess waiting to happen. That if, that if you met with people individually and got them to sign off on goals, there's a high risk that they might tell you to go in completely different directions. And that if it truly was to be a bipartisan commission, uh, what I needed to do was to get the co-chairs together and have them set goals collectively so that I wasn't being told to go in two or three different directions that were completely impossible to do at once. And then once the co-chairs agreed, then involve the other commissioners. But it really was the idea that um, you would end up killing yourself if you did not embody the very bipartisanship that needed to happen. Um, the second thing uh, that was also the theory of the case was uh, I, I quickly got together the staff because I had about a hundred and 120, 130, um, not all were on site, but I had about 120, 130 uh, assignees, which in, in public service, for those not familiar with it, assignees mean technically they report to you for daily instruction, but they're being paid for by a different government agency and they're having their performance review done by a different government agency. So you really don't have a lot of lever to motivate them. Which is which is always fun, you know. You love that when you you're sort of trying to get people to do something, but you don't pay them and you don't really give them their performance review. So um, I got the, them together and I said, sort of said, what's going on here? And they were feeling frustrated because they felt like they were spinning their wheels. And so for the first hour and a half, when I met with these folks um, and, and and listened to them, uh, I, I would just sort of ask questions. I was like, I was like, what's going on here? How does that, you know, what are your frustrations? What do you think we should do? And after about an hour and a half, I said, okay, let's go to lunch. And so we went to lunch and we tried to, as much as possible, not all 120, but we, we did a large group lunch. And then we came back uh, to, this, to the classified uh, facility and said, okay, so how are we going to fix this? And so one of the things that I have learned throughout my career is if you come with a solution, it's just you bringing that solution. But if you involve others in figuring out the solutions, then it's a force multiplier. And so I knew for this commission to really work, 
I sort of had to to listen to the team, learn from the team. Yes, I had theories of the case, but I actually needed to see what they were going to submit to. And collectively, we figured out what we were going to do together. And, and I think what we need to do, especially in, in nowadays when public service is polarized, is we have to figure out how to turn what I call problem holders or problem admirers into problem solvers, because that's the only way you're actually going to have something that has lasting impact. And so really what I was trying to do throughout that entire commission was both upwardsly with the commissioners that were congressionally appointed, but also with the staff, um, collectively try to get them to be problem solvers together. So, so after this commission, where, where are you ending up? I mean, you, you're working yep. on all this R&D, um, especially uh, for ODNI. What, what was that next step? Again, it, it seems like your career was very intentional. I'm guessing you're thinking about your next <laughs> step while you're doing this. Yeah. So actually, uh, again, the, the, the principal deputy director of national intelligence who, you know, I, I, I once had a chance to ask her, um, she was very kind. She would, she would occasionally invite me over for lunch in her office. And of course, you know, if, if you know, at that level, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it one, they're very, very busy people. And then two, the, to have the chance to have some conversations I asked, I said, you know, what about her career and, and how did she get where she was? And she said, well, one, your career will only make sense in hindsight. <laughs> and, and two, you know, if anyone had told her 20 years earlier that she would eventually become the principal deputy director of national intelligence, she would have thought they were crazy. And I think I, I sort of embody that too, which is part of public service is, is if you're really in it for service is you go where you're called. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a matter of timing, you know, and, 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 and yes, you need to be looking and you need to make sure you're picking things where you think you can bring your passions. Um, but I was, and basically she was kind enough when the commission ended, she said, um, the challenge is, is now you have interacted with Congress. And even though you're not the type of person that, that plays politics, you're going to be looked at for a while by the IC as being too connected to Congress. So why don't you spend some time with a civilian agency? And I said, sure. Um, and so uh, that led to the Federal Communications Commission, which had had at the time nine either permanent or acting CIOs in eight years. So sort of like the previous commission I just did, you know, it's always a great sign when you've had nine people in a role over eight years. That means that things are just going great, I'm sure. Um, but then two, um, it also had five commissioners. And so I was down selecting from 12, six and six, Democrat and Republican to five. In this case, uh, when I arrived, it was going to be three Democrats, two Republicans at the time. Um, and, and, and it was going to be a chance to sort of tackle what had not succeeded at the Federal Communications Commission, which is their, their modernization. Um, but also um, there was a component uh, that, that is kind of quiet at the Federal Communications Commission. There used to be a thing in, the 19, in World War II in, in, in the late 1930s and early 1940s called the Radio Intelligence Division, uh, which later became the Enforcement Bureau. But basically back in the late 1930s, there was concerns about covert um, amateur radio uh, communications emanating from the United States uh, that would give away troop movements or information about World War II. And so the way that the government solved this in a way that was also preserving of civil liberties and privacy was that if you were an amateur radio operator, you had to both take some tests to qualify and then get a call sign so that if later it sounded like somebody was, you know, giving codes to Nazis or something like that and trying to communicate troop movements, someone could say, please identify yourself with your call sign. And if you didn't, then that would be nowadays an enforcement bureau action. And so it was a good way to balance both everyone should use amateur radio, but also figure out um, some of the, the, the ways to protect civil, civil liberties as well. 
And one of the things I saw on the horizon is that uh, more and more devices are going to get connected to the internet. Um, and I often jokingly say anything with the word smart device in front of it really just means hackable, um, whether it's you know smart, smart whatever, um, smart home thermostat or whatever is unfortunately a hackable one too. And, and I was trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to deal with the fact that more and more of these devices are going to be in the civilian space, uh, but at the same time present very real both national and international security risk for the planet? Um, and so I was interested in going to the FCC. And, and basically, when I parachuted there, it was clear that first they had to up just modernize their systems. They had more than 207 different IT systems, average age more than 10 years old. And, and of their budget, they were spending more than 85% of their budget just to maintain these legacy systems. Um, and so, again, sort of the same modus operandi that I did uh, with the, the, the intelligence community's uh, national commission. I met with as many of the bureau chiefs because there's lots of different bureau chiefs. If you haven't been at the FCC, there's a lot of different bureaus and offices. Each have different personalities. And then I also met with the staff and said, what are we going to do? And at the first staff meeting, uh, I said, I'm only, again, I always said, I'm, I'm only going to ask questions. And I said, so, you know, how do people feel about what we're doing? And, and I asked for a show of hands and I probably had 15 people, 15% were excited. 50% were undecided. I even jokingly said, how many of you are just waiting to see if I'm still here six months later? And that was about half of the people in the room. And then uh, I said, how many of you are pessimistic? And that was about 35%. And I said, does anyone have any you know, can anyone share why they're pessimistic? And and one of the brave people in the room actually sort of said, I, I do, I have a beef. I said, okay. And granted, I had only shown up about three weeks ago. So I was three weeks into the job. And this person said, it happened 17 years ago. I said, tell me more. Because again, I can only ask questions. Could you please tell me more? And he said, it was it was something involving a dispute between the contractors and, and the government employees that happened 17 years that he felt was done wrong. And so I listened and I said, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, how can we carry what we learned from that experience 17 years ago into what we want to do here today? And so again, it was very intentional that I, I try to convert as many people from being problem holders to being problem solvers. Um, and I can't say I succeeded with everybody. I mean, when you get to that large of a group of staff and contractors, there's some that are, you know, you, you try your best, um, but they may be really set in their ways. And I think a lot of people, again, they joined public service, either as a government employer or the contractor to make a difference, but they may have had, you know, may have hit the wall so many times they just sort of have given up. Um, but we did turn things around. I mean, you know, three months in, we had gone from being 15% were excited to about 25% were excited. Six to nine months in, we are now up to about 35, 40%. And by the one year mark, uh, we were at about more than half were excited. And that's when we took the really big plunge of saying, this was 2014, we were going to move all the FCC IT systems uh, to either private hosting or public cloud, um, but basically get them out of the building uh, because that was just untenable. Behind the scenes, another reason for that was one, uh, there had been prior to my arrival, two advanced persistent threats, APTs, that had hit the FCC prior. And that's never good. Um, advanced persistent threats for listeners are usually nation state uh, backed attacks. Uh, and then two, it was just, again, this aging infrastructure consuming more than 85% of your budget to maintain it uh, was just untenable. Um, and so the good news is um, by middle of 2015, even with some hiccups along the way, uh, we succeeded to move everything to that point. 
and as a result, reduce the spend that FCC had to do to maintain systems, the operations and management uh, maintenance uh, spending from being 85% to being less than 35%, allowing us to then direct some of that funds to new development. It's it's cool to hear kind of the, the behind the scenes, how your approach was, because uh, you kind of came on my radar when you were at FCC and heard so many people talking about all the innovative things this uh, the CIO David Bray is doing over at FCC. And it's it's cool to hear your approach on how you went about it. I really like the the intentionality behind changing people from problem holders to problem solvers because you're you're not only getting uh, uh, mind share from people and diversity of thought, but you can start to change the dynamic and the culture of an organization where they're not holding on to these problems. So I can see how that would be something you would really prioritize in the beginning as. As you were going through this role, what was what was probably the hardest part of operating as a CIO in government? Not even just specifically FCC, but when you think back at this time, there, you have so many different challenges and so much bureaucracy you're trying to work work towards or work through. What was probably the most challenging piece that you that you had to navigate? And have you seen any of this change since you left? Because it's been a little bit of time. Yep. Um, so I'll actually put out three things that collectively created a very, I mean, yeah, there, there were times when I was like, I took this role. Why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the three hard things were, and this is not unique to government, but, but 2015, you know, the 2014, 2015 time period, chief information officers, it was still seen as quite frankly, the geeks in the basement. Um, and that was partly doing to deal, doing, deal as a result of IT's roots. If you think about it, um, IT initially was a function that that grew out of financial. You know, the first computers were there to support accounting and financial activities, and so IT supported finance. And then it graduated up and moved from the C, just supporting the CFO, chief financial officer, to the chief operating officer in business. So now it was supporting operations, and, and it was beginning to get awareness that if you weren't if you weren't thinking digital for your entire enterprise, whether it be a public service government enterprise or a, or a for-profit enterprise, um, then, then you just were not in the 2010s, 2020s. But it was still sort of seen as, I mean, people use the language, IT supports the mission. And I was trying to sort of say, no, 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 IT is part of the mission. You know, it's not a subservient role that, that actually, if we're not thinking about digital in how we do the mission, then we are missing the boat. Um, and yes, People matter. If anything, I always told people it's an 80% people problem, 20% technology problem. But it was this mindset because you often had cases where, you know, and again, I was very, I actually tried to pair people with a almost anthropology mindset, a psychology mindset as sort of like business analysts with the different bureaus and offices to understand their processes. But uh, it was often a case where you would encounter offices that wanted new IT, but they didn't want to change anything about how they were doing it. And so they would apply old processes that may have made sense in the 1970s and 1980s to modern IT, which was a big mismatch. And so that was the first thing that was really hard. The second thing was <laughs> um, the average government employee had been at FCC for 17 years. The average contractor had been at FCC for more than 21 years. So the contractors had actually been there longer than the government employees. And as it is, here I am showing up after they've had about nine different CIOs in a permanent or acting position relative to the last eight years, you know, and here I am asking to move to public cloud. Here I'm asking to move to private hosting. And what they're hearing is my buddy 
who I have worked with, my contractor buddy who I've worked with for more than a, 10 years on, on, on average, may be out of a job because we're going to go to a different public cloud provider or private hosting provider. And so, you know, this guy who just showed up, who is trying to get us to be modernized, is breaking up friendships. Um, and, and that's hard. I mean, especially when you're asking them to sort of believe in the cause and move forward. And so yeah, it speaks, speaks to why it's, <laughs> it can become a big people problem. Oh, it's, it's always, I mean, cause you're yeah. at the end of the day, you're breaking up relationships. Um, and some of the contractors, you know, could see the writing on the wall that, that yes, you know, that, that some of the legacy support contracts were going to conclude. Now I tried to do my best to proactively say, but here's opportunities for you to do new and there's, there'll be funds for new development. But they, in some cases, they, they got on the train. Other cases, they swapped out uh, the really good people with less than good people. And so that was kind of hard. Or even worse, there was actually one case where there was a contractor who was actually very good at carrying the flag and moving towards modernization of the FCC. But they, the, the, his, his contractor bosses literally waited until New Year's Day to fire him. And, you know, in, in, in government services, I cannot go to a contractor and tell them to specifically hire a person. That would be wrong. It can only sort of give the roles and responsibilities, but it's up to the contractor who they hire. And so when they fired this person who was a, a champion, uh, I had to basically call up the managing director and then from there um, sort of escalate up to the chairman and say, can I get permission to do an emergency government hire? And I explained the situation and, and it got approved. And so two weeks after New Year's, when people had come back, uh, I met with the contracting organization and, and brought in the COTAR, the, the person who manages the contract. And I said, look, you know, in the future, if you're going to let one of the contractors go, we just ask for two to three weeks notice because that's kind of disruptive. Um, and also, we now have a new person in charge of your contract. We'd like to introduce you to him. And the person came in. And so, you know, I always do open palm first. I always try to extend a hand of friendship. But when you are modernizing, you need to be aware there are going to be detractors who aren't always going to play nice. And I hate to say it, I mean, because public service should be a benevolent activity. That's what I always tell people. Be bold, be brave, be benevolent. But you need to be aware that sometimes folks who want to hold on to the past, um, for whatever reason, will be your biggest detractors. And so um, that, that was just one small example. And, and I had to be aware that also they could run the Congress. They could try to whisper in Congress's ears that I was doing things wrong. And then the last thing that I would say that made it difficult was 2015 probably was the beginning of what I would call the democratization of disinformation. Um, that, that, you know, we were not aware of it, but we were, you know, the world as a whole, um, was producing technologies that made it easier for disinformation to be spread across the planet. And that makes it really hard in public service because quite frankly, nonpartisan public servants have no real voice if they, if, if, if they get labeled with something, you know, political parties, they've got spokespeople, they've got public relations. But, you know, if you look at later what happened 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, um, and even now, it is really hard if you're a nonpartisan public service to have a voice uh, if, you, if you get labeled with something that's not true, but then you're trying to play catch up because it's already out of the bag and, and the media cycle has already picked it up. And, and, and I, I was operating under the theory that I couldn't do what I was trying to do invisibly, that modernization of the FCC had to be a public engagement. We had to involve our stakeholders. Um, one of the, the things I discovered about the FCC was there had previously been an attempt to update the FCC website. 
um, and they had not involved outside stakeholders. And so when they modernized the website, nobody was happy, um, including, I mean, one of the small things was they had moved the search box from the left to the right or the other way around, and that created a revolt. Um, and so, you know, in public service, because you serve multiple stakeholders, any visible outside change has to involve stakeholders, and that takes a lot of time. Um, but I think that becomes particularly hard in an era in which open societies like the United States now have to deal with the democratization of disinformation and figure out what does that mean for people who are just trying to serve the public. Let me ask you this. I mean, since the time you left the FCC, um, there's 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 been a good amount of um, kind of global issues that have taken place that have really impacted us um, in a myriad of ways. I mean, I, I'll I'll rattle some off real quick. I mean, one is obviously the the evolution of of cybersecurity and cyber attacks. They've only gotten more advanced as um, as kind of the attack vectors have widened. You talked about everything smart is hackable, and I think um, the the expansion of that has opened that up. Right, um, the disinformation. I, I think that is a, a huge national security uh, threat. I, th- I was at a conference where I taught, was listening to um, General James Clapper, uh, who was at the time then the former uh, director of um, uh, national security, and he he talked about that as the number one threat to national security. And I think that is only um, metastasized. I mean, you can do you can literally through AI have have a video that looks like someone else talking in their voice and and it's hard to uh, it's hard to see it as anything other than the actual person so i think that's another um not the least of which is the pandemic right a, a global pandemic that is is still not um uh, completely over uh it's probably something we'll we'll have to think about for the rest of our lives uh so on and so forth when you take a look at all these things one I, i'm curious to know Kind of what your thoughts are on 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 how we've adapted as a as a culture, and if you if you think some of that right sizing we're seeing right now is, is ultimately good or bad, but also when you take a look into the future, because that, that's kind of some of the work you're doing now as you're looking more forward thinking. What what is another thing that we should be looking at that really might shock the world next? Yes, well, you're, you're you're spot on that a lot of things have come to pass that 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 some people saw and and I think you know, I mean, again, I, I go back to 2010 where I was actually teeing up at the time for Department of Defense and the administration that we needed to figure out visible proportionate responses for cyber deterrence because, in some respects, the U.S. because we are so connected to digital technologies, we're actually at the most vulnerable too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's some, some actors know how to exploit that, unfortunately, but that was 2010 and it got buried and here we are now. And, and, and part of what you have to accept as your mantle in life is, is you're not always going to hit, you know, a, a, a hundred times at bat, but if you can get 40 out of the hundred times or even, you know, 35 out of hundred times, that's still a good batting average. And it's worth the attempt. Um, even if at the time it's not received, um, I mean, I can speak to my own experience that that partly why I did leave the FCC. Um, one, um, you know, was the good news is that my wife and I adopted a newborn baby boy, and and we were hoping, um, you know, the amount of time that you know that that senior executives spend in government, people don't realize that's not a nine to five job. That is, mm-hmm. you know, it's usually at least twelve, if not longer, hours a day and and weekends sometimes too, and that's part of the service. But you know, we needed to. I, I wanted to spend time with this this child who came in our lives. But the other reason was um, 
the FCC had had a high profile proceeding, net neutrality, uh, which it had back in 2014 as well. And, and 2014 was high because the most comments the FCC had received up until 2014 was about 1.1, 1.2 million um, out of a nation of about 300 million people when there was a wardrobe malfunction at a Super Bowl event, which some people might recall. Um, and that was prior to my time. But then when net neutrality happened in 2014, out of 120 days, there were about 2.4 million comments, including at the very end, you know, about 1.2 million comments in the last week, which even in 2014, there were web scrapers, there were signs that this was less than authentic activity, that this may have been spam. And that's not new. In some respects, if you go back into the history of the FCC and other government agencies, I mean, other government agencies see this as well. There had been mass faxes back when faxes existed as a way to sort of spam. Uh, before that, there were mass mimeographs, if you remember the blue mimeograph copying machines. And so, you know, creating campaigns politically to sort of flood government agencies was not new. It's just, again, we're, we're making it easier. And so fast forward to 2017, and we actually sort of had cautioned um, the, the commission to be, you know, I had actually asked if I could use CAPTCHA. Uh, as a way to test for bots. And I was told, well, if somebody is both visually and hearing impaired, they may not be able to use it and therefore they wouldn't be able to use the comment. And that violates the Administrative Procedure Act. So no, you cannot use CAPTCHA. So then I said, well, can I can I block what looks like spam? And they're like, well, you might get it wrong and therefore you might prevent someone from leaving a comment. So I was like, okay, guess let me understand this. I'm supposed to receive any and all comments and I can't do CAPTCHA and <laughs> I can't block spam. <laughs> this is not going to end well. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, in the first two weeks, um, we got more than 2.4 million comments, which again, in 2014, 2.4 million comments in 120 days. And so now compress it into 14 days. It doesn't take a lot of forensics to go, something's odd here, something's going wrong. And so when, when the system started, you know, we had a cloud system, we had moved it to cloud and we actually were able, the success that was not told was, by going to cloud, we were able to rapidly scale it up. And we scaled up multiple, multiple, multiple times um, because the volume was just so massive and I couldn't do caption. I couldn't block spam. Um, but then when, when folks asked what was happening, you know, I gave my opinion to the, to the chairman's office and then they ended up writing a press release that, that attributed my name to it. I would not have agreed with the language, but it was close enough that there were people that were trying to leave valid comments that were humans. And there were other people that were trying to do something else that may be denying service uh, from other people. And that effectively, and actually a good friend and colleague, Vint Cerf, agreed. He said, yeah, it's a denial of service. It's at the application layer, not the network layer, but it's it's clogging the tubes um, so that other humans are having problems leaving, leaving comments. And it may not be intentional. It may just be the, the equivalent of mass spam as faxes or whatever, but it's having that effect. And so... Of course, there was an uproar. And at the time, you know, it was trying to figure out where this was coming from. Was it politically motivated? I don't get into politics. I just sort of keep my head down. And so I, I kept my head down as much as I could. And to its credit, to the credit, the, the IT team at the FCC kept the system up 99.5% of the time for that entire proceeding, even with we ended up getting two point, sorry, 23 million comments, which again, three years earlier, the most we'd ever gotten was 2.4 million. So we'd actually had a 10x multiple. And that was only possible because we had gone to cloud, but that kind of got lost in the noise. And so at that point in time, I was like, you know what? I'm going to work with Vint Cerf uh, with the People-Centered Internet Coalition and, and publicly try to work towards a more people-centered internet because I think we've lost that. And then behind the scenes, I was also spending some time with the Department of Defense and Special Operations Command on the problems of countering disinformation. And, and, it, and it, 
without going too much into the challenges of countering disinformation, one, it's worth noting, it's always been there. Um, Presidents John Adam and Thomas Jefferson did disinformation to each other. Thomas Jefferson hired a political hitman to claim that John Adams wanted to go to war with France when he really didn't, but he wanted to win that election. And John Adams, um, actually, and his wife, uh, Abigail Adams, wrote op-eds claiming that Thomas Jefferson literally was the devil. So I, I remember learning about that. It was it was one of the first times in history where people actually started to campaign against each other. Yes. And, and it goes back to presidents two yeah. and three. And, and they have monuments nowadays. So what does that tell <laughs> Um, but, but again, I also recognize that my lot in life as a nonpartisan civil servant is to just be quiet. You know, I, I, I am there to, to serve. And if I have done my service or if it's no longer fitting, I go another thing. So I, I sort of left. I did not know a year later, cause it was never like, I never got asked what I saw, thought or did. And I would have been happy to share what I did. But of course, a year later, I'd given up my email access and all my documents. But, um, then the then chairman at the time claimed, you know, oh, this was all made up. Uh, there was an analysis that looked at the network layer, but not at the application layer. And so we don't see anything at the network layer. And that's where EventSurf and I and others who, who understand how the internet work was like, well, of course, you're not looking in the right spot. You're not looking at the application. But again, you know, at that point in time, I'd moved on. Um, and there were more important things because even in 2018, you could tell from a military perspective that, that things were brewing with Ukraine and Russia. Things were brewing with the South China Sea. And I'm like, you know what? This is just a distraction. Let's just focus on that. Even though I, I wanted to speak out for the IT team and say, these guys did the right thing and it was up 99.5% of the time, you know, and it wouldn't have been without their Herculean efforts and their, 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 their amazing work that they did. Um, but all things, if you wait long enough, eventually come back around. Uh, three and a half years later in, in 2021, the New York Attorney General, who was looking at this, uh, basically concluded that 18 million of the 23 million comments that had been received in 2017 were from inauthentic sources. In other words, not exactly completely real individual humans. And that about 9 million were from six companies that one party had hired to flood the FCC. And another 9 million was apparently a teenager or two that, that did the same thing from the other party. So both parties were doing it, surprise. Um, and I just raise that because I think as we, you ask, you know, what are the storm clouds on the horizon? I think we need to look at the very fact that I celebrate we're an open society. I celebrate freedom of speech. I, I, I want us to continue to remain true to that in the Constitution. But are we allowing forces, both foreign and domestic, to use those very values and virtues that we cherish in the United States to, to, to pull us apart? You know, the openness of speech is great. But now with things like chat GPT-3, I mean, I hesitate to think what the FCC or any government agency would experience in a high-profile proceeding. Because now with ChatGPT3, not only can you leave a comment, but you could leave a comment that was 100, if not 1,000 pages long, and then do a million of those. And can you imagine the time and administrative burden and the cost to go through all those comments if you flooded it? Um, I'm not endorsing that. No one should do that. But <laughs> that's, now, yeah. that's now possible. And 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 And... I tried to, when, when, you know, in the aftermath of 2018, 2019, I tried to work with the Council of Inspector Generals for Integrity and, and, and uh, I think it's efficacy, maybe it's efficiency, but I tried to sort of put forward to them, I tried to go to the Administrative Council uh, of the United States and say, you've got to update your procedures. This is a case of technology has moved forward dramatically, yeah. but you're still using 1940 procedures for commenting and you're surprised when there's a mismatch. 
Well, that actually leads me to to another question that I have for you because you talk about this challenge, and and it's absolutely one that is is very recognizable. But there's technologies out there that can that can support and mitigate. Not the least of which is is artificial intelligence. Yes. Um, but when we take a look at over the next three to five years, you talked about a storm cloud, and I see that. What's a technology that you think is going to have the the biggest impact in our lives? Maybe that isn't mainstream right now, but but will be mainstream over the next couple of years. Yes. Well, I think again, I apologize. I'm going to pick three. The rule of three. <laughs> um, I think commercial space. I think people are aware of some because Elon Musk and others have been publicizing, but we've missed how dramatically commercial space has changed in just the last three to four years um, and how that can be both a force for good and a force for not so good. I mean, uh, the fact that you are now seeing hyperspectral um, synthetic aperture radar satellites that are actually able to provide um, forces in Ukraine, these are commercial satellites, not government satellites. These are commercial satellites that are able to provide um, insights to Ukrainian forces that are as good, if not better than what Russia knows from commercial satellite sources, you know, that's amazing. And that, that's that, you know, and that, that is a point of hope, but that same technology, um, you know, are we going to go into a world in which, um, commercial competitors are, I mean, we know hedge funds already do this where they look at cars and parking lots to try and guess if certain retail outlets are doing well or not before their quarterly reports come out. But what if other sort of competitors are now going to be looking and sort of saying, you know, what is your supply chain? Where can I disrupt it? You know, that, that unfortunately they cross the line between being competitive intelligence to being, you know, not so nice. Or what if we go into a world in which seven or eight years from now, there's a divorce proceeding and one of the aggrieved spouses says, you claimed you were going to the grocery store, but I pulled up the satellite records and you really went this way. Or, or what if political appointees in, in, in less open societies use satellite records to try and damage or, or, or attack, politically attack their opponents. You know, I, I'm all for privacy. I'm, I'm definitely for privacy. At the same time, we are instrumenting the planet both from space and from Internet of Things sensors. That means we've got to really think now about how we do what I would call digital integrity in a way that you have at least some choice. Uh, I don't think it's ownership because data ownership is hard. You take a photo of 10 people who owns that photo, the person who took it or the 10 people in it, but at least some choice as to how your data is used uh, for goals that you're interested in. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing I would say is synthetic biology. Uh, you look at what happened with the pandemic. You referenced uh, uh, COVID. And, and it's worth noting that with the bioterrorism program after anthrax, we later dealt with West Nile. Um, we dealt with monkeypox, the first outbreak of monkeypox in North America in 2003, as well as the original uh, coronavirus, severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS in 2003 as well. But if you look at what happened with this latest round of COVID-19 that came out, um, the amazing news that kind of got swept under radar is at least two of the vaccines were designed in a computer and printed nucleotide by nucleotide. That's amazing. I mean, back in the 2000s area, the way you did it was you developed vaccines in eggs. It was time consuming. And, you know, we were able to get vaccines for COVID-19 so fast because we could design them in computers and print them out nucleotide by nucleotide. But that technology is going to get democratized like all technologies. And what happens when someone who does not mean well uh, prints something else nucleotide by nucleotide? Or what happens if, you know, I actually had wrote a memo in 2009 saying, I sure hope wherever any VIP like the president or vice president goes, somebody is also sprinkling fake DNA wherever they go. Because if someone gets a hold of their, their DNA, 
that could be problematic, especially in an era in which we're democratizing synthetic biology and, and what you can do. And so I hope we can learn some of the lessons from what happened in cyberspace and, and the internet to try and avoid some of those challenges with synthetic biology. But uh, I, I worry that we may not be we may not be responding fast enough. And then finally, the last one is um, the quiet thing on a radar that, that that has been talked about some, but it mainly talks about breaking encryption. And, and I think there's, there's, there's other things that will happen, which is quantum computing. Um, quantum computing will be special purpose computing. It will not be used for generalized purposing, at least initially. But it will allow us to do certain things that just are not possible with conventional Van Neumann computer architectures. And, and that includes just doing massive things in parallel, including guessing what the future might be. And so you can imagine if you take these, 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 these advents in terms of technologies, in terms of instrumenting the planet from space, uh, from Internet of Things and smart sensor devices, you can actually run a guess as to what tomorrow is going to look like. And instead of doing one simulation or instead of even doing 10,000 simulations, you do a million or a billion simulations, each with different variables tweaked. And then you actually see what tomorrow looks like. And whichever of the round of simulations looks the closest to what actually does occur, you then use that one. And then again, you try that again with a billion simulations. And so over time, you are adapting your guesses to which ones actually match the future as much as possible. Um, obviously, it won't work all the time. And in fact, if anything, you want to ask when something is predicted and it doesn't happen or, or something is not predicted and it does happen, what changed? But that is something that you know already I would say... I hope nobody is individually trading stocks because hedge funds will outperform you all the time. But if we get into a world in which those that have the power to run these massive predictive computer events using quantum computing um, are only a few and it's not democratized, uh, that could be a very concerning future for us all in terms of our ability to sort of exercise free will. And I, I don't want to be doom and gloom because I'm all for figuring out creative solutions. But I do think we need to sort of think about if we value what the United States stands for and, and its allies, you know, that open societies that give you freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, freedom of the press. If you value those things, we may be due for an update. And even Ben Franklin said when the um, Constitution was signed, he said he could rest easy that the great American Republic would exist for the next 50 years. So I think the real thing is that I, I worry that while we get caught up in the political polarization and we get caught up in the what are we going to do this next budget year or even the three-year budget cycle, the real conversations that we need to be having at the community level, not just in government, but at the community level and then bubble up to the nation, how do we update what we stand for in a way that's big enough tent for everybody, but is also ready for the technology changes that are happening this decade? Wow. I think that's, I mean, we talk so much about basic ethical technology issues like ethical use of AI and, and things of that nature. But I think you really hit on something there where th there's technologies out there that are so far away um, from being mainstream that we almost haven't given them the, 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 the time or the intentionality of thought behind how the best usage, partly because I would imagine that the people that need to be having these conversations don't understand it. And, right. and I think that that's a, that's a huge challenge. Let me ask you this though. I, I want to, before I give you a chance to, to, to leave some final thoughts, you, you mentioned a little bit of doom and gloom, but you got into this to do, uh, do greater good. Um, and there's, it, we're in a challenging situation right now, macroeconomically, there's a war still going on. The tech industry is taking a little bit of a hit. 
But as you look into right now and, and moving forward, what's something that's really giving you hope for the future? Yeah. Well, so first it's worth noting, I mean, if you take the long view of human history, there have always been doom and gloom on the horizon. I mean, you go back to Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities, and he said, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Um, it was the age of enlightenment, it was the age of despair. You know, it, and that was literally when the French Revolution was happening and people were losing their heads to the guillotine. So, you know, I think it is always the human lot in life that, that sometimes the, the doom and gloom get more attention than what's going well. Sure. What, what give me hope, uh, what gives me hope is, is we're now at 8 billion people on the planet. And if anything, um, you know, while it feels like there's more conflict, actually, by and large, there's actually less conflict. It's just we're more aware of it. Um, what, what also gives me hope? Um, I think we are, you know, in some respects, things have to reach that, 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 that I won't say crisis point, but it's, it's almost like when things are good enough, you don't, you know, most organizations are not going to change because things are good enough. They can continue to keep on doing the way that things were, maybe with diminishing returns, but nobody is proclaiming that the plane is going to run into the mountain. But when that mountain gets close enough that you're now your radar is beeping and it says, pull up, pull up, pull up, that's enough of a signal that you actually need to do something. And that's, if I look at my career, I always go to places I, you know, I, I have a very patient and understanding wife who accepts the fact that I tend to go on places on fire because that's when it's enough. The, the, the signal is strong enough that you got to do something different. doesn't mean I always succeed. Sometimes I get burnt, but you know, at least it's, and so I think there are things rising to the level of local, national and international consciousness that now are going to motivate folks of all ages. I won't say, I'm not going to pin my hopes on just one generation. I'm going to say of all ages to be creative problem solvers, if we can create the spaces for them to be that. And so uh, I'm, I'm actually bullish on actually businesses that choose to be something more than just profit driven, that can be for benefit businesses as having an outsized role in the decade ahead, because they'll recognize this in their own interest. Um, for example, um, believe it or not, uh, there, you know, when the flooding happened in Pakistan, uh, there actually are commercial industries that actually are helping Pakistan recover because of the lost business as a result. And they're doing that. Yes, it's, it's good to do. It's great to do. You should do that for your fellow humans. But they also recognize that, that, that it's in their long-term interest as well. And so I, I, I am interested in, for the big problems we have, like let's take climate change, which everyone thinks is so massive, I'm not sure how we're going to tackle it. Um, I've actually seen some startups right now that have actually developed bacteria, natural bacteria, not synthetic, natural bacteria that not only can use methane, which methane is about 40 times as bad as carbon dioxide, depending on the time horizons, but it's, it's, it's worse, can take methane from a liquid or gas source, use that methane as a sugar source, and then actually pull nitrogen from the air and return it to the soil. So not only do you remove this gas that's even worse than carbon dioxide using natural bacteria, but you actually return nitrogen to the soil, which is needed for healthier soil. And what I'd be interested in is how can we create, create incentives? It's almost like where can you put sugar in certain places so the ants go there? Um, and one example could be if, if through a combination of air and space assets, you were able to look at the planet and say, I see methane here, or I see low nitrogen content in the soil here. And so now you've actually created a market opportunity where those companies that have the natural bacteria could sign a contract to remediate the soil. They do that. And then a month later, you take another photo and you say, look, nitrogen has been returned, methane's gone. And now you've created a market mechanism where somebody could actually pay the natural bacteria companies for that. And so, you know, 
I, it, what gives me hope is, you know, past successes always create the risk of future failures. For example, you know, we, we, we solve infant mortality, but now unfortunately we have risk of starvation. We create, we increase crop yields, but now we have the problem of youth bulges and unemployment in certain parts of the world. We get the youth employed, but now we have the risk of pollution. We solve how to deal with the pollution, but now we need more energy sources because we were using the energy to try and refine the pollution and prevent it. You know, doesn't mean we shouldn't have stopped at any point in that line. I mean, I think we all would agree reducing infant mortality is a good thing, but it is worth looking at how the world is a complex adaptive system and there will always be new problems to be solved. That doesn't mean we should give in to despair. If anything, we should, again, just rise to the occasion and say, how can I use my talents? How can I engage my community to use their talents to solve that? Because this is kind of what we do and what we should be doing. I love that. And you're absolutely right. I think the success can breed challenge on the back end. Um, yes. so being ready. I, I like how you say it. Just to, it, we just need to be able to rise to the occasion because mm -hmm. it's coming and it's, it's everybody's responsibility, no matter what the challenge is. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, before I let you go, uh, any final thoughts you want to leave uh, with the listeners today? Well, first for everyone who's doing public service, uh, and that includes everybody who is a government employee. That includes everyone who's a contractor who's in it for the broader purposes of the nation and the world, uh, everyone who's just a, a cheerleader on the side or someone who is trying to help on the periphery. Um, this is the time, and again, I, I celebrate that, you know, that, that this decade, I think, is going to have an outsized influence in terms of ripple effects for the next three, 30 to 40 to 50 years. So this is the time now to sort of tackle the hairy, doesn't seem to have a clear solution answer. Um, I would also say for everyone who is thinking about playing a role in becoming either a government employee or becoming a contractor supporting it or, or someone on the sidelines that is, that is cheerleading and supporting, um, it is worth wondering, have we created a system in which the easy, the things that look like they'll have a quick return in two to three years, those are the things that people gravitate to. And as a result, the things that are messy, that don't have clear answers, that may not be solved in two or three years, that may be 10 to 15 years, that may not be solved in the first attempt, get left on the sidelines. And so I would say if you're in a position where you have that freedom to tackle the the, the hard, the the messy, the spaghetti, please do. Um, because I also try to remind people that fail is actually an acronym. They just don't tell you that. Fail means first attempt at iterative learning. There will be a second attempt at iterative learning. There'll be a third, a fourth, and fifth, and sixth. Um, and it's worth remembering that there was this thing called Project Corona in the 1959s and 1960s, which was, it, it gave government the job of launching a rocket with a satellite that in 1959, 1960 was supposed to take photos of the Soviet Union and then parachute a film canister that would be picked up by a plane or helicopter before it landed in the ocean. The first 13 rockets exploded. It wasn't until Rocket 21 that they finally succeeded. Um, finally, in the 1990s, that, that, that photos from that were declassified. They were bought by a small company that was later bought by a larger company called Google that became the basis for Google Maps and Google, Google Earth. Um, but imagine nowadays if we had just government try to do that. Um, I guarantee you, we probably wouldn't have gone into rocket attempt number 13, probably rocket attempt number four or five would have had congressional hearings as to what's going on here. And, and that's partly a consequence of we're more transparent, which is a good thing. Um, but where are the places, the safe spaces to tackle those really hard problems that do not have clear answers? And I think, again, that that's where some interesting combination, because even business, nobody wants to be Xerox Park, which did wonderful R&D, but failed to capitalize on it it's going to require sort of four benefit entities. And I'm not going to say the word 
for-profit, non-profit, or government, I'm just going to say people that are there for something beyond just an ROI. And ROI is important, but something beyond just a return on investment, but really sort of doing good for the world. To be willing to tackle those hard things that will have to require a first attempt at iterative learning, a second, a third, and a fourth attempt, because these are the problems that need to be solved. Uh, And with that, then I'll close with the benediction I always give, which is, uh, please be bold, please be brave, and most importantly, please be benevolent for the future ahead. That's that's awesome. I, I think it, as you were telling that story, it reminds me of Edison saying he didn't he didn't fail. Uh, he just found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Exactly. So you just keep innovating, keep innovating until you until you get it right. Um, the thing that I, I I I sometimes I question whether whether my oldest son is listening to me. Um, <laughs> and there's there's times where he restores my faith. And the other day, um, he was doing something and. Um, I forget, I forget the question my wife asked him, but he said, no, mom, I can't stop right now. I haven't got, I, I haven't figured out how not, or how not to do it wrong. Nice. Right? It, you, you don't just do it right once. You have to continue to do it until you literally can't get it wrong. And I've, I've told him that a few times and it's, it's nice to see things like that stick. And it's the same idea. You have to iterate, iterate, iterate until you can't get it wrong. Exactly. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's the, the mentality that a lot of these um, companies have, and I think it's getting into government too, which I think it, it, when we, we talk about what gives us hope, it gives me hope because I think we've we've seen a lot of really smart people like yourself and others that have done these these periods of time in government and really helped to innovate. And I think um, that's kind of helping that that type of innovative culture metastasize within the public sector, and it's exciting to watch. Yep, I agree. I mean, I think like you said, grit, patience, and determination will take you very far in life. Absolutely. David, I I can't thank you enough for being on here. I learned so much and I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you again. Thank you, Brian, as always as well. This has been the Government Huddle podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.